J.H. Babinka again seems a lovely, godly, gentle guy, but fiercely elenctic in wanting to um, unmask idolatry and call people to Christ. Mm. We're made to try and answer these questions. And exegetically, which I think is where Babink is genius, all this comes out from that little um, section, Romans 1, 20, 21. Uh, uh, God's revealed his invisible qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature. And really the magnetic points are Babink's exegesis of what eternal power and divine nature means. So the magnetic points kind of come out. That That's the clay that mm. he then molds into these magnetic points, which act as a a framework or a scaffold for us to understand there's no smooth path from idolatry through to christ there has to be repentance there's a turning around mm. idolatry is against god but i think he, he's able to do it not just at a, a normative level in terms of his his theology but in his life as well Welcome to The Afterword, conversation on books, reading in the church, a podcast by Westminster Bookstore. I'm your host, Johnny Gibson. And today I'm joined by an old friend from the UK, Daniel Strange. Uh, Daniel is uh, the director of Crosslands Forum in the UK. Uh, he's also a co-chair of Southgate Fellowship and uh, recently appointed a fellow to the Keller Center for Apologetics in New York. Uh, he's also the author of uh, Making Faith Magnetic, Plugged In, and Their Rock is Not Like Our Rock. And uh, very tragically, he's also a committed West Ham football fan. Amen. Uh, I'm a Liver Liverpool football fan, so this could get feisty. <laughs> uh, Dan, good to have you on Great the podcast. Hi, Johnny. Uh, we're here to discuss this recently published book by Westminster Seminary Press, uh, The Church Between Temple and Mosque, Subtitle, A Study of the Relationship Between Christianity and Other Religions by J.H. Bavink. And uh, you've written the introduction to it. Now, we've all heard of Herman Bavink uh, with his Reformed Dogmatics. Uh, who was J.H. Bavink? So, uh, great to be with you. Uh, J.H. Bavink was Herman Bavink's nephew. And uh, if I had a, a dollar, I suppose, for every time people confuse the two, um, but yes, the nephew, he uh, lived between 1895 and 1964. And uh, he was a really influential reform missiologist. Um, Ed Clowney says that his book, The Introduction to the Science of Missions, was the textbook for the generations. Uh, and uh, a bit of bio, he came from a pietistical family, was part of the um, the reformed churches of, of the Netherlands, uh, went to study, was, was very interested in psychology. He did his PhD on a, a medieval mystic, mystic um, Heinrich von Suso. Um, and then he went out on the mission field. So he was a missionary in Indonesia and in Jakarta, taught at the Theological Seminary in Java and um, did a lot of contextualization work. And then he comes back to the um, the Netherlands and becomes a professor at the University of Kampen and then later at the Free Un University where he he'd studied um an, an amazing life uh, some of his children ended up in uh, concentration camps at the end of the war they were returned um he died in 1964 um and yeah i've, I've just been fascinated with him for a, a long time i love the way that he writes he's more of a um a passionate thinker and prophetic seer as one person said than a systematic theologian um this, this is not turretin 
but the way that he writes is very evocative. He once said um, he knows that he has a penchant towards the mystical. And the reason he talks about the mystical tradition is because he knows that he's drawn towards it. And so he needs to guard himself against it. But he writes in that kind of very um, evocative, kind of pregnant way where uh, I, I just find it uh, fascinating. So that's a, a little bit about him. Um, and uh, yeah, very pleased to be writing the intro to this new book or this re remake of this book. Yeah. And um, so 20 years uh, missionary in Indonesia. Yeah. And when he came back to teach in the Netherlands, was he appointed as a professor of missions or what, what, what was yeah, his so subject? He, yeah. So he was professor of missions. It's interesting for those of you who are interested in your kind of Dutch reform history. There was quite a lot of co conflict when he was appointed, especially with Klaas Skilder. Um, because I think J.H. Bavink was seen as quite a controversial figure because I think he was so interested in kind of contextualization. And then actually J.H. Bavink mediated. He was a very gentle guy by all accounts. He mediated when Skilder left the nomination over baptismal regeneration and uh, uh, Bavink was called in to try and keep things together, although although he didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, it's funny. I was in I was in Belfast last year, and uh, preaching at a church and doing some stuff on this Medi and, mediating between yeah, Protestant, yeah, it wasn't me, Protestants no. and Catholics. And a, a lady. It was in a Baptist church, and a, a very old lady came up to me, and she said, um, "I was a missionary, and when I was a little girl, J. H. Bavink came to preach at my church. Oh wow! And still alive. Hmm. And um, he, but she, she was very interesting because she said even then he was a very controversial figure. He pushed the boundaries of someone in the Reformed Church because maybe because he was a bit more ecumenical, but I think more the contextualization question about how do we contextualize the gospel. Mm. I think there was some real resistance. So even though he was a, by all accounts, a very humble, gentle, quiet man, he was quite radical at the time for trying to introduce a kind of reformed missiology. Um, which makes him, I think, a very prophetic figure for writing in our context today. Yeah, and we'll come on to some of those maybe controversial aspects a bit later. Um, why is there a resurgence, do you think, in interest in J.H. Baving at the moment? Yeah, so I think, I think, well, it might be partly because people get him confused with Herman. <laughs> and, and there's been so much kind of Herman industry recently. Yeah. His middle name is and, Herman. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's why Johan it's JH, I know. Um, I know. I think seriously, I, I wonder whether, especially in a Western context, we are realizing that we're all in a missiological situation. And as Reformed people, we want to go back to our tradition. And of course, there have been figures like Leslie Newbegin who have been very popular um, and I love Newbegin, um, but I wonder whether we need to go back to our own tradition and we've been looking in the cupboard. Where is the reform missiology mm. to help us here? And the cupboard's a little bare. Mm. And unless we go back to Virtius, um, we're mm. kind of going through um, the tradition. And J.H. Bavink's there and he did all this amazing work. And a lot of it is now increasingly being translated. I think the other thing is J.H. Bavink was very influential in the life and work at Harvey Conn here at Westminster. Mm. And Conn was all obviously a, a massive interest um, and influence on Keller. And so I do think there's a bit of a direct line from J.H. Bavink down to Keller. Um, and Keller's very positive about this book, but also the stuff that Bavink's done more more generally. So I think that's part of, of the popularity. So tell us the story behind this book. How did it come about? Yeah, not, so, not, not yeah. this edition, but its yeah. original edition. So it's a, it's a, it's quite mysterious, really. It's it's a, it's a it's a posthumous publication. So Bavink had died a few years later. This was published, 
And it's um, it was lectures that he gave in America to American students sometime previously, a few years previously. Um, and I think the best, I think it's probably the Federated Theological Faculty of Chicago. Um, so that, a strong evangelical yeah, school, so, yeah. But the, the amazing <laughs> thing, and um, this is pointed out in a book, there's a, a Dutch missiologist, a guy called <clears throat> Verkowl, who wrote an introduction to missions where he notes that these lectures were on the invitation of uh, Messiah Eliada. Now, Eliado, if you know, if you're a scholar of religion, was at that time, he's one of the the, the, the grandfathers of the discipline, Romanian um, scholar of, of religion. And probably at that time, he was the preeminent religious scholar in the world, was in Chicago, read Bavinck's, the J.H. Bavinck's book on religious consciousness, and then invited Bavinck over. So it's incredible that this kind of like this Dutch reform pastor in a very niche kind of context gets invited by the world's most famous religious scholar to give these lectures. Um, it's really helpful. Um, James Eglinton, who some of you may know, who's done a lot of work on Herman Bavink. Um, when I said I was doing this, he looked at some old newspapers, um, Dutch newspapers, because he, he, he speaks Dutch and um, uh, saw uh, that actually there's a um, TV listing, TV listings, uh, radio listings of Bavink being interviewed while he was in Chicago around 1960. Mm. So I, we think these are the lectures that he gave there. Hmm. Um, so it's incredible that these are lectures that are given in the States. Uh, and I was joking about it being an evangelical school. It's just a university. So it was quite bizarre to invite a reformed theologian yeah. to come and give lectures yeah. on missiology, yeah. which would be quite at odds with where that university oh, at the yeah, time. Yeah, completely. And I, and I just think his um, J.H. Bavinck's scholarship and this, especially the, his, I think his, 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 there's three works that are kind of the high point of his writing. An Introduction to the Science of Missions, which Clowney got behind and was the reformed textbook. This book, uh, and then a book um, called Religious Consciousness. And as I said, I think Eliada read Religious Consciousness, was really impressed with it, and then invited Bavinck over. Mm. So I think, oh, well, I think that's true. I think it's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it is true. And uh, tell us about your story, because you're sitting here with a very old yes, version. Yes, this is an old battered copy. Uh, tell us um, how you find James. Yeah, so I was, a, I was an undergrad when I was... Uh, 18 or 19, 30 years ago, um, I, was, I went to Bristol University, which was a very, very radical liberal theology and religious studies degree. And I realized within the first week that everything on my reading list bore no relation to what I believed in, in terms of my evangelical background. So when I was looking for essays, I went to Bristol University Library and I was just trying to find anything in, on the bookshelves that I could even kind of have any kind of contact with. And I found some Leslie Newbigin and I was looking at the journals section and the Scottish Bulletin of Evangelical Theology had republished an article that um, uh, Bavink had written in Themelios, actually, which was the one of the chapters in this book called um, "Human Religion in God's Sight," and mm. that was like a, it was like an oasis, mm. trying to find any kind of point of contact, and then coming across this essay. So that really got me into reading J.H. Bavink, and then I learned he'd written the Introduction to the Science of Missions, and then yeah, I got this old battered with it's been withdrawn from a theological library; no one wanted it. Um, so it's been out of print for a, a long time. So really grateful for the for the press for kind of um, bringing it back to life. And uh, yeah, so it, it, I have a personal contact with it at a time when I was really struggling to know how am I going to get through this three-year theology and religious studies degree? Mm. I need some theological orientation. And then finding J.H. Bavink was a, a breath of fresh air. And uh, if I've understood it right, elenctics is really the discipline that Bavink is doing here or working in. Yeah. 
unmasking and each of his works in a sense is an exercise in Alenctics. Can you tell us a bit more, what is Alenctics and why do you think it is important in missiology yeah. today? So Alenctics used to be its own discipline within the theological encyclopedia and it's got its relation. So Kuiper talks about Elenctics, apologetics and polemics and something called prosthetics, which are these different ways in which we deal with other religions, we deal with paganism, we deal with other things. Anyway, Bavinck, um, uh, there used to be a kind of, it, it, it was a its own discipline. We know it in the reform world because of obviously Turretin's, you know, elenctic theology, although it's slightly used in a slightly different sense. But yeah, elenctics is the word group elengo in the New Testament, which comes up time and time again, especially in John's gospel, where it's the Holy Spirit who will convict the world. So we translate it as convict, unmask. And mm. it's this idea of um, uh, unmasking the religious other for what it really is. So it's all about uh, idolatry. We do it in love. And again, you've got this great juxtaposition that I, ho I hope we'll come on to between J.H. Bavinko, again, seems a lovely, godly, gentle guy, but fiercely elenctic in wanting to um, unmask idolatry and call people to Christ. Um, so I wish that, you know, my, part of my life's work, I suppose, is to try and revive elenctics as a discipline. There's a volume where I've written an essay in a volume that you've edited that's coming out next year on that in terms of the elenctic task. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we need to revive that word. I mean, of course, for people watching this, especially if, if you're a, a Westminster student, um, this is not just a, an obscure missiological thing, because, of course, in Titus, the elengo verb is what the pastor is meant to do. They are to refute. Hmm. And uh, that's part of uh, the pastor's job and uh, the under shepherd's job. So we need to be much better at talking about elenctics and doing elenctics. Okay, so we'll come on to that actual task that Bavink does in uh, in a moment. Let's just take a step back now. He talks about the subtitle of the book, Christianity and Other Religions, the relationship between them. He says it's a very old problem, the relationship of Christianity to other religions, which is nevertheless new in every age. Why does he say it's an old problem? Yeah, well, I think from the first century, the relationship between what was becoming what would be would be called the Christian religion and religion is again a very contentious term I, I realize that spending a lot of time trying to work out what religion actually is but if we go with it for the moment and how we relate so obviously you've got the first century apologists you've got Justin and others who are trying to work out what's the relationship between the, you know the the Christian faith and the other, whatever that might be. Um, I think it's important that Bavink does say it's an old problem because sometimes people look at evangelical and reformed Christianity and say, well, the older Christians never had to deal with religious pluralism. But I mean, of course, it's all over the New Testament. I mean, what's, what's going on in Acts mm. apart from it's a religiously plural plural world not just a factually pluralistic world but cherished pluralism you know the problem was not that you believed in jesus because you could believe in any god that you wanted to the fact was that you said that jesus was god and was preeminent that was the problem mm. that was the scandal of particularity <clears throat> i think what bavink's saying is that the new phase that we have is again he's writing in the 50s and the 60s globalization is becoming much more of an issue. There's much more kind of uh, people coming from different um, ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, uh, immigration, emigration. And he realizes that, yeah, how do we kind of deal with this, um, uh, deal with this? What happens when the Christian faith comes against mm. uh, the religious other? What do we do with that? And I think that's partly why he wrote the book. 
And uh, he speaks about religious consciousness. Um, what does he mean by that? And is it true of every single person? So we can say, yes, a Hindu person yep. is religious. He's conscientiously religious, a Muslim person. So what does he mean by religious consciousness? Yep. And is it true of the secularist and the humanist? Yeah. So religious consciousness in the way that Bavinck exegetes Romans 1 especially is religious consciousness is the suppressed, substituted sense of the divine that we have. So actually it's quite a negative context. So con it's, it's a negative term. to be. So religious con consciousness is to be contrasted with orthodox faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. So it's not religious consciousness is not that we're made in the image of God. It's not that we're searching for God. It's that we're made in the image of God. We've suppressed the truth and substituted it for idolatry. And what that is, is religious consciousness. Mm -hmm. And um, and in answer to the second question, yes. I mean, I think, although Bavinck in Church Between Temple and Mosque, he's dealing with what might be called world religions because that's what he's engaged in in, in Indonesia especially. But the, he pushes, and this is why I'm trying to develop this a little bit. It, it is that this is universal. You know, the exegesis of Romans 1 is not just for those who are formerly part of a traditional religion mm. it's that all human beings have a religious consciousness and they as Bavink would say in his very relational way um everyone is wrestling with god they're wrestling with god's revelation they're suppressing the truth they're substituting it it always has to come out somewhere um and that's what he means by religious consciousness and then what he does from take so it's like a, a um if you have this idea of religious consciousness what he then develops is what might be called a uh, a morphology or a framework which he deals with in this book and religious consciousness that will come on to these magnetic points the way in which what does religious consciousness what's its kind of characteristics what what is it shaped like um so in answer to your questions yes religious consciousness is the suppressed substituted knowledge of god that mm, issues in idolatry um and uh, yes everyone has a religious consciousness so I'm I'm thinking of a quote by I think it was Henry Van Til who said that culture is religion externalized. Yeah, the Calvinistic concept of culture. So yeah. I, I, if I'm hearing you right, Bavink would sort of agree with that and say that even a secular culture is a very religious culture. Yes. Yeah. I think I think the way that and again this is where the contextualization comes in. It's a different. Um, the configuration of having to excavate more of that religious consciousness. It doesn't. I think. When, for example, these magnetic points or the, these um, scratches, itches that everyone has to scratch, I think in Indonesia, everyone believes in God mm -hmm. or gods. The question is <clears throat> what God and whatever. I think in the secular context, it's all still there anthropologically, theologically, anthropologically, mm -hmm. but we have to do a bit more digging to get that out. Mm -hmm. And that's part of, I think, the challenge that we have at the moment for people who have no interest in religion or faith. Mm. Um but I think what we what Bavink does start to hint towards is that the most secular context, <clears throat> this religious consciousness and this analysis is still relevant because Romans one is still relevant. Yeah, and so it's not so much that you've gone from deciding uh, away from God to no God. Yeah, it's just that you've substituted the one true God for some other God. Yeah, and in a secular yeah. context. That might not be going to a temple. It might be going to a sports stadium. Yeah, and that's why it's and, and again it's and again it's lazy then just to we still have to do just as you would on the mission field. Well, of course, this is the mission field. It, it's everywhere. So, it, I mean by that the specialized mission field where people would spend years learning a language, doing their ethnographical research. We mm. need to be doing that 
in this context mm. for the for the what we call the secular or the nuns n o n e s um uh which is increasingly the kind of the the majority of people that we're we're coming across yeah. it's the same the theology the same anthropology it's not a different discipline in that sense it's it's just good for me reformed theology theological anthropology so it's exegeting the culture as well as the scriptures and trying to bring the two together with the points of contact i'm thinking of paul on mars hill he knows their poets well yep. enough to quote them yeah and then to be able to make the point of contact and unmask what they think yeah i mean he's wandering around the objects of worship and again but in not in this book but in another book i mean paul um, babink says about paul in athens that Paul must have shuddered when he said he was going to refer to the unknown god and make any kind of connection or link with Christ. Mm. He knows you know this is a you've got to be very careful that we don't become syncretistic, but he says we've got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so he wanders around the objects of worship. He sees the unknown god and he's not saying, "Oh, and by the way, this unknown god is Jesus," because he starts that whole section by being provoked. He has a paroxysm over idolatry just as God is Uh, God in Deuteronomy 32 is provoked by idolatry and he calls people to repentance. So it can't be, oh, isn't it great you worship an unknown God? I'm just going to tell you it's Jesus. There's got to be, there's, there's repentance, but there's still the there's still the point of contact, mm-hmm. which is there. And yeah, as he quotes from Miratus and Epimedes, you know, in him we live and move and have our being, we are his offspring. Um, and, and again, that's not... Um, Take, that's not affirming those quotations out of context i think it's showing that there is a an an itch that has to be scratched but there's some vague well as i'm going to talk about in this um uh, a lecture tomorrow on van til van til talks about this faint desire that 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 people have and mm. i think bavings onto that um the religious consciousness that he sees present in all people in all cultures having analyzed it he sees commonalities across yeah. religions yeah. do you want to unpack what those are he has five yeah. commonalities which he calls magnetic points tell us what those are and then we'll talk about maybe some of those yeah so um the yeah so religious consciousness is made up of what i i keep referring to it as these itches that human beings have to scratch questions that have been asked at all levels of the highest philosophy down to you know every day um now bavink has kind of five um i'll put them in my terms because i i'm i remember them more than i do bavinks there's this idea of totality and connection um there's the idea of uh so yeah how do i connect with the universe what am i am i a significant individual or am i insignificant so t- totality is there a way to connect bavink calls that i and the cosmos yeah. the and then he has him? something called i and the norm which is the mm-hmm. idea that is there a way to live we all have norms we all have laws that we we live by um and bavink discusses those i think he has a uh, iron redemption the idea of deliverance um mm-hmm. which is really Im- important destiny which he calls i am the riddle of my existence mm-hmm. which uh bavink has this great line that says we both live our lives and we undergo our lives at the same time and then i suppose what might be called the supermagnetic point i am the higher power the question that as we ask about connection and norm and deliverance and totality the question is is there is there a higher power um that which is i and and the higher power and he writes about this in this book the church between temple and mosque he does another version of this in his book on religious consciousness they have a slightly different order but yeah they they're the five magnetic points and don't compartmentalize them they're all 
perspectives on the one religious consciousness. People may lead with one or we may be interested in one, but they everyone's asking all of these questions. And the, the important thing to note is that Bavink says they're not just consciously asking the questions, their lives are responses to the questions because this is how we're made. Mm. We're made to try and answer these questions. And exegetically, which I think is where Bavink is genius, all this comes out from that little um, section, Romans 1, 20, 21. Uh, God, uh, God's revealed his invisible qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature. And really the magnetic points are Bavink's exegesis of what eternal power and divine nature means. So the magnetic points kind of come out. That That's the clay that mm. he then molds into these magnetic points, which act as a, a, a framework or a scaffold for us to understand. So he's saying all religions, all human beings... Although religion and religiosity and spirituality can be very diverse, we're all basically asking these questions. Mm. So it's, it is what you might call a theological religious studies, which I find really fascinating. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's take one of those, I and salvation. Yeah. He has a chapter in here called Thirst After Salvation. Uh, so is he saying that every human being is looking to be saved or knows their need of salvation, even though they go looking for it in all the wrong places. Yeah. Is that what he's yeah, getting and I at? Think it's, and I think it's the, the, yeah, the idea of deliverance, that the world is not as it should be. There is a problem. And what is the way that that problem can be fixed? Mm. Now, of course, all the world related faiths have their own way of answering that, as do we. Um, but I think, you know, moving forward to where Bavink's looking more at secular culture, I think he'd say that's the same for everyone. We're all looking for deliverances, whether it's the mini deliverance of how do I get through the day without having another drink mm -hmm. through to big <clears throat> metaphysical ideas of the afterlife or, or, or whatever. How do we, how are we delivered from death? How am I delivered from the frustration of life? Um, how am I delivered or how deliverance could include also looking back to nostalgia to say, why can't it be like it used to be? So I think I, what I think what Bavink does, and I, th I think what we need to do increasingly is take those categories and be more imaginative in how we use them. But I think the question for deliverance is a perennial question, and that's the same with, with all the magnetic points. And if, if this might be overly simplistic and overly reductionist, um, <clears throat> could we condense all that down to say that Christianity is a monergistic religion, God alone saves, and all other religions, including secularism, is is a form of, of synergistic salvation. It's, yeah, and, it's and with, us yeah. plus the God yeah, and, or, or, or us whether plus it's through, something. Whether it's through, you know, buying a, what is it, Gwyneth Paltrow gloop kind of thing and, <laughs> and, and having some kind of purification way. Mm. I mean, there's the, the idea of purity, the idea that um, I think that's part of deliverance as well. And I think, yeah, I think, and um, of course, the complexity, and again, this is where the ethnography and phenomenology of religious studies is important because obviously some other world faiths have had interaction with Christianity. So it looks as if they might be saying similar things. Yeah. But actually, when, when we look at that, when we look at it, what Jesus Christ offers from the outside mm. uh, is, is the difference. It's between the, the difference between, you know, works and grace. And uh, that recognition is so Im important. Uh, and I think you see it quite clearly in the climate change religion. Uh, today, you know, there's a, they have a certain eschatology. It's a very pessimistic one. The planet's going to blow up and melt. Yeah. You know, if we don't do something about it and there's a way we got it, we have to save ourselves. Yeah. 
And, and, and again, it, it feeds on into the other magnetic point. So just talking about that, I think um, talking to some undergraduate students at a mainline university recently, I was talking to them and they were saying about um, how they, this idea of destiny, how it links with deliverance. So this idea that um, they, they've been told, the younger generation, that you are the people who are going to change the world. The, the, you need to do it. If this is your time. You can do whatever mm -hmm. you want to. And so these kind of idealistic students, they come to university and in the first week they realize they, they, they can't change anything. And the kind of the despondency and the disillusionment. Mm. And then that idea of destiny, I don't have any freedom. I'm not in control. I'm being controlled by the man. I'm being controlled by the fact that I can't find a mortgage. I'm being controlled by mm. the, the, the system. So the destiny thing is plays into the deliverance. So it's where all the magnetic points mm. kind of, and then that links to totality. Am I am I significant or am I insignificant? Do I can I control my own destiny? And then we make up our norms to deal with that for belonging. So all the magnetic points are kind of working all at, all at, at the same time. Uh, my short experience in the world of sort of Van Til reformed apologetics, elenctics, uh, Bavink, I'm just becoming familiar with. I see people either tending towards the unmasking, towards the antithesis. Yeah. And others tending towards the point of contact, the um, f subversive fulfillment. Uh, may maybe that's unfair, but I, I rarely find someone who I think sort of holds the two together robustly. W where do you think Bavink? Yeah, Bavink's great. So I think I think well, I would hope that subversive fulfillment is trying to do both of those things at the same time. You're right. I think there's a tendency sometimes to focus too much on the the connection and less on the confrontation and, and sometimes more on the confrontation than the connection. And I think Bavink, not just in his theology, but in his life, he does do, from what I th can understand, not having ever met him or spent time mm. with him personally. Um, uh, interestingly, he died on June the 23rd, 1964, and I was born on June the 23rd, 1974. Interesting. <laughs> um, that uh, He was able to, to, to do that. He... He's someone who wanted to meet people. He talks about meeting people in love and that the wounds with which we unmask and cause infliction to the other have been first performed on us. Mm. Incredible. So he's a man mm. who lives by grace, the meeting in love. Mm. And yet when it comes to the elenctic task and the unmasking, he's fearless. I mean, to the point where sometimes you think, really, what is the point of contact here? Because, it, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, there has to be, there's no smooth path from idolatry through to Christ. There has to be mm. repentance. There's a turning mm. around. Mm. Idolatry is against God. But I think he, he's able to do it, not just at a, a normative level in terms of his, his theology, but in his life as well. And I think mm. he's someone who who does that. And I think that's where we need, I'm going to sound a bit like Vern Poitras here. There is a kind of a bit of a multi-perspectival where we need each other temperamentally. I think some of us more mm. are the contending more and some of us are more the connecting more mm. and we need each other to help each other when we're kind of about to fall off the horse one way or, or the other. Mm. And that's where I think Bavink is really good on that. Um, Machen, maybe more on the antithesis side. Let me give you a quote. I couldn't possibly by, comment, but go on. By, by Gresham Machen, <laughs> warrior children and all that. Yeah. Um, uh, Machen said, a Christianity that is tolerant of other religions is no Christianity at all. How would J.H. Bavink respond to that? So if tolerant, again, if tolerance means the importance of 
in a civic sense, especially bearing with one another, then I think tolerance is a gift of Christianity to the world. If it means acceptance, syncretism, compromise, then that is itself its own religion, which is not Orthodox Christianity. Mm. So um, depending on how Machen is using the word tolerance, I, I'm going to say amen, I imagine, in, in the way that he's using it. Mm. Again, the difference between um, factual pluralism. I mean, you cannot you cannot deny that we live in a factually more pluralistic society, mm. but then that doesn't necessarily mean that we think it's cherished. It's a good thing. Mm. And I think that, that that's really important, especially in this area of the theology of religions, what's Christianity's relationship to other religions. And there I think Bavink has a, a lot to teach us. What do you think of the sort of new emphasis, maybe it's been there for a decade or more, of on the mission field, trying to get Christians and Muslims together to dialogue um, to hear each other's perspective because often in countries, uh, continents uh, like Africa, where it's so volatile yep. between Muslims and Christians, trying to bring some sort of civil, peaceful reconciliation between the two. Uh, some missiologies now saying we need more and more dialogue so that we can learn to live together. Uh, have you any thoughts on that yeah, kind well, of I mean, approach? You know, look, it's always good good to talk mm -hmm. and uh but again I, th I don't think talking means that one then has to there's still the elenctic stuff going on it's really interesting are you saying about when there's elenctics being used or talk spoken about john stott wrote um a christian a christian mission in the modern world where he starts off with a quote by bavink on elenctics and the need for elenctics especially now mm. so i think even in our dialogue there has to be an apologetic evangelistic thrust um, because the most, the best way that we can love people is by calling them to repent and have faith in mm. Christ. And, and we do that from the position of the fact that we've been saved. Mm. Um, so dialogue, I think, has to go somewhere. And I think you can have very robust, I think the best dialogue is when you can have the robust mm. dialogue and say very clear things about difference. Mm. Um, and it actually, I think it's disrespecting to try and minimize difference mm. when Christianity, Islam, Hinduism are saying very different things. And we need to recognize yeah. that. Unfortunately, the the religious ac um, academic establishment has a very, well, it, it's, a, it's an enlightenment mush together, mm. uh, which is not, I think, fair on the otherness of the other. And often I think the dialogue is with a view to compromise. If, if yep. we can just both get group, both groups to the table, eventually each will compromise. We can have a sort of happy existence together. I, I agree. I think it's good to talk, good to be engaged in things like that. And yet there will come a time when the unmasking gets to the point where it breaks down, it's confrontational, it is calling people to repentance. And like Paul in Acts, con you know, frequently yeah, yeah. he's preaching the gospel, he engages people, he dialogues, yeah. and there comes a point where they like kick him out of yeah, the city yeah. and because, it, because he's uncompromising. Yeah. And I think you do get to that point. The thing I would want to say though, Johnny, is that I think it's important just as Paul observes the objects of worship and spends time doing that, we can't cut corners there. We need to listen well. Mm -hmm. We need to do our, our ethnographic research. We need to be able to... Um, 
know about the other in a way that they could say we when we talk about them yes you've described me well yeah and then we we do our theological analysis i think that's the key thing yeah. that now this is this is for not for now but one of the things i write about in the introduction is that what we have here is not just a theology of religions but we have a theological religious studies religious studies post enlightenment has always been seen to be a neutral discipline. It's not neutral. We all come mm. with a perspective. This is what the Herman Bavinck worldview, J.H. Bavinck worldview stuff is telling us. Mm. We're always going to have a perspective. And I think Bavinck actually offers, offers a theological religious studies. I come to look at the other as a Christian. Mm. And that's important that we don't lose that. I think a lot of even evangelical religious studies still wants to be quite neutral, but you can't be that, and I hope you know. As a you know, good Vantillian, you, I, I'd recognise that in terms of we all come with a perspective, but everyone does. I actually think this is a really helpful way of um, under, helping people see that we all come with a particular way of viewing something, um, and then let's let's talk about those things. And then we're always praying as we talk for the point of for the point of contact. We're looking not at the idolatry, but we're looking for the suppressed image of God, which is that flickering pilot light that's always on mm. um, and that's what we appeal to um, our time's coming to close you've written some books uh, in which you've in a sense tried to take Bavink and sort of popularize him or the method of trying to make yeah. those points of contact do you want to just tell us about some of your books yeah so it's popularizing and recontextualizing so uh, the, the my, my book I wrote uh, 18 months ago called Making Faith Magnetic is unashamedly taking the magnetic points but applying them to your average secular Western context. So it's saying it's the same theological anthropology, the same questions, but what does it mean uh, not with a world religion, but with a, a normal Brit or a normal American that we might come into contact with? What are the examples of totality and norm and deliverance and destiny and and higher power with a view to then giving that framework that we can all then go into our churches, into our local context and say, yeah, you know what? I've got no traction with this person. They're not interested in hearing about Jesus. They don't know. They're not even interested. But if we believe they are religious, if we believe they have religious consciousness, mm -hmm. they will be expressing this religiosity. We need to listen, find out where that is, and then show Jesus how Jesus yeah, is the subversive fulfillment of, of what, how they're expressing their religiosity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, well, the last thing I'd say here, Johnny, is that, the, the the understanding of religion, this is where postmodernism can help us, uh, is that religion is a very contested context, context. Religion, I think, is an enlightenment concept. If you said to someone before the enlightenment, what is religion? They wouldn't know what you're talking about. Hmm. And I think that's been a real benefit where postmodernity in religious studies has tried to say, you can't just say they're these kind of set world religions it's much more kind of diverse than that. And mm. I think that's great for us because I'm saying mm. we are all religious mm. and we all have a particular uh, uh, ultimate commitments that we bring. And the magnetic points are helpful for us, especially in excavating those in people who show no interest in what we have to say. But mm. we know that they are responding to the magnetic points. We know that they're running to God and running away from him at the same time. And that's why I think this analysis is really helpful. Yeah. Dan, I could keep talking to you, but unfortunately our time is gone. So thank you very much for joining us on the Afterward. Uh, this has been an Afterward uh, podcast about this new book by Westminster Seminary Press, uh, The Church Between Temple and Mosque. Uh, check out our website, wtsbooks.com, uh, to get a good offer on that book. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again on another episode. Okay, so... Uh, 
Ask your question, I will repeat it. Great, I'll close in prayer. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> so how should a pastor use J.H. Bavink in how to equip the congregation for evangelism? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say, I think, is for the, for the pastor and the leadership team to do the wandering around the objects of worship of where you are. And again, you know, you'll be in a very particular lo location and you need to do that work. And then I think, yeah, over time, helping giving christians the tools to and the eyes to see in terms of you know reading a book like again this isn't just self-promotion of the book but taking a book like this and let, let's read this as a congregation um i mean plugged in my book previously and this book making faith magnetic they're meant to be they're not academic books they're meant to be accessible for you know, a kind of a thinking christian who could read this and say ah yeah, this friend that I've been talking to has got no interest. Actually, I could now see them in a different light. I could ask a different question. Um, so I think that that's how we can, learning about our context, which is going to be very particular. If we're too abstract, then our our the way that we interact will just ping off the surface. It won't have traction. These books are all about getting traction where God has placed you in your particular neighborhood in the local church. And that will be very different. But if you have the tools, then you can start working out as a church. Yeah, what what would be a what is something that we could do as individuals or as a church that might stimulate people thinking about how they find their identity or what deliverances are they looking for? Um, so it's kind of trying to stir the pot to get you thinking rather than thinking, I've got no idea how we're going to evangelize these people. They're not interested in anything that we've got to say. They are interested because they're human beings. And, but you have we have to do the work and the hard work of listening and doing the kind of ethnography and this is the, the whenever I come to the states at the moment this is what I'm trying to say is that you know you've got we mustn't think that cross-cultural missionary work is some specialized thing that doesn't apply this is happening now and you need to be aware of that and we can still have our Christian bubble and Christian in institutions. But what's going to happen is we're just going to have the in increasing separation between a kind of a Christian culture and everything else. And I think we're called to be missionaries where, where, wherever we are. And that means doing the work that we would be training people for traditional cross-cultural ministry, but here. And that's why I didn't get this in the podcast. You know, one of the great things about J.H. Bavink is that he's saying missiology should be at the center of every seminary curriculum mm -hmm. um not yeah. in a way that blurs the 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 topics into a mush but that there has to be a missiological application um and i think that's important for seminaries to be thinking about as well mm. you know all this learning that we're doing where is it going missiologically in mm. terms of um bavink's definition of mission which he gets from votius which is about evangelizing discipleship and the glory of god and those three are not against each other they interact with each other they the each one supports the other and uh, that's why mission is so important mm. and just on that uh, i've just started reading this book it's it's easy on the mind you talk about a good preacher being easy on the ear this is easy on the mind it's not it's not heavy reading it's actually a book you could do with a church group a book club not you know it's not just for the elders or the pastors it's really for lay folk i think it's yeah, it's yeah. pitched it's 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 very conversational yeah um, and again don't just think that because yeah. the book 
the one of the great things about this book is again, don't just think, well, I don't have any Hindus or Muslims in my neighborhood. The the framework here is to be translated for any context you are in to the most kind of hardline secular secular because of that is its own worldview. And and the the tool, you know. The, ex- the Romans one does not change. The, ex- the theological anthropology that doesn't change, but obviously the context changes. So this is about contextualizing, and some of this is out. I mean, I know this in, in the introduction. Some of Bavinck's analysis of other religions it is out of date now. We know better, but Bavinck would say that. I mean, he's writing in the sixties. How much more now do we know phenomenologically or ethnographically about things? But the theology, the framework, mm. is solid and robust and nuanced and deep, and uh, that's why. It's 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 wonderful to read. Thank you. Yes. I found your uh, your analysis of other religions as uh, parasitic counterfeits. You're really helpful. Does Bobby see it that way? And also, have you gotten pushback on that from other Christians? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Let, have, let, have. let me repeat yeah, the yeah, question. Um, so the question is. Um, uh, parasitic counterfeits is how you describe other religions yeah. on Christianity. Have you had much pushback on that? Yeah, so uh, does Bavink go yeah. there and do you, have you had much pushback? Yeah. So um, the second bit first. Well, yeah, of course, because, and again, I wouldn't, um, you know, I'd want to contextualize my language and parasitic counterfeit is not, you know, that's a kind of a, but they're theologically, again, idolatry, even though it gives for many millions of people in the world, conjures up all kinds of negative things, which it is. Idolatry I'm, it is a very um, sophisticated theological tool that we need to to use, as well as it being terrible and against God. Um, so uh, I think, yeah, the, the idea that all idolatry is parasitic on the truth. So that's where the subversive fulfillment comes in. There's always going to be, be a point of connection. Um, and yeah, Bavink does talk about that. He, he wrote an essay called... Um, General Revelation and the Non-Christian Religions, which is actually in the J.H. Bavinck Reader, which has the book, Religious Consciousness book. So it's edited by John Bolt a few years ago. Erdman's published it. And that book talks about um, certain other religious traditions which have borrowed from Christianity, both theologically and historically. Um, I developed that a little bit in my big book on other religions, what I call um, Remnantal Revelation and... uh, uh, in, influential revelation, the idea that over time... So Islam is a great e- e- example. There's no doubt that M- Muhammad came into contact with some form of Christianity in his life, Nestorianism probably. And so that's that's part... And again, historically, historically, and I don't think you can deny this, Islam within the Western Christian tradition has always been considered as a Christian heresy rather than another religion. And that's important. Um, in Dante's Inferno, Muhammad has his own subcircle of hell uh, rather than pagans. So there's so Islam especially has a really interesting relate, historical relationship with Christianity, which again is a um, one of borrowing and um, counterfeiting in in that sense. Yeah. Hmm. Leo. Other than the context of religion, um, what are some of in relation to American context with LGBT agenda being pushed or sexual identity yep. issues going on, yeah. would it be helpful for the local church that is struggling with what is going on? Now? Yeah. Do you want to repeat the question? 
Yes. <laughs> I just think that's a very good question. I was trying to think what, how I would answer I thought you were about to ask me to answer it. No, no. Um, yeah, you, uh, do, you do your job all the time. Yes, I, I'm, very, I'm very happy with that arrangement. Um, yeah, with our current cultural climate, with the LGBTQ movement and um, ethos, has J.H. Bavink's book got anything to say yeah. principally to yeah, that? massively. So look, an ex-student of mine converted out of a very um, lesbian background culture, became a, a, a Christian, now trying to do some subversive fulfillment back in that context. She recognizes when it comes to totality and significance, she, she was loved in that community. That community loved her. And now it's how do I show that actually one, that it's not as loving as it I thought it was, and two, how the church is more inclusive than that community that included mm. with her. And again, it's back to the magnetic points. It's saying, how does any of these worldviews and ideologies, that they are religious in that they're manifesting these magnetic points. Um, and we need to do that, 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 that analysis and understand where people are coming from and what... There's a... Um, I, don't, I do it in a lecture. There's an incredible statement by Vladimir Putin in 2014 where you can play like magnetic points bingo where you read you read the statement and it's just magnetic point about what it means to be a Russian what it means to be part of the Ruski Mir we have an identity other people don't we can deliver it, it, all the magnetic points are there mm. and you can see why people are attracted to the, those things because they offer the magnetic points but what we have to do as part of our job, and this is where we're not very good, it's not just saying, it's not just to compare and contrast, although it's partly that, I'll be talking about this tomorrow, it is how do we expose, how do we expose LGBTQ by, by saying, for example, that we know that those communities actually, you put those initials together, but actually those initials don't like each other. You know, we, we have to do the, the exposure, again, in a, in a very godly, careful way, um, Bavink has this great line where he says, you know, th these wounds that we're inflicting, we need to be very careful how we're doing it. But that exposure of recognizing that people are drinking from crack cisterns when there's a fount of living water, mm. we have to do that. And that's where the Elenctics comes in. We have to do the exposure of idolatry, showing that it it doesn't, it's not what it says it is. And uh, that's where we've got a lot of work to do, I think, because... Um, the best counterfeits look so much like the real thing, and that's why they're counterfeit. Uh, but they are counterfeit, and they show themselves out to be that, and we just have to do that. We have to do that un unmasking. I wonder just on this one, on the LGBTQ thing, whether what's new about it is <clears throat> that the gods that we have previously worshipped in our idolatry have all been outside of ourselves, yeah. and what's happened now is we now worship the self. Yes, and yes. that, that's the new idolatry although, is the worship of although, the yes, self. Yes, definitely. Yeah. However, and I'll be talking about this tomorrow. If, you, if you're interested in my lecture on Van Til tomorrow, Isaiah 41 is brilliant on idol construction. Mm. So why does Isaiah talk about idols being constructed? Because as the approaching menace of Assyria comes forward, people make the idols because they know that they need something outside of themselves to protect them. The problem is shaky people who don't know their identity make shaky idols. So although we have so idolatry and autonomy go together. Mm. So even though we do internalize this, actually we still are making things mm. outside of ourselves to give us significance because we know at the end of the day we're not God. Mm. So 
that there's an interesting relationship between idle construction, which mm. shows that we make we still have to make things outside of ourselves, which is what the totality point is. Mm. You know, uh, mm. which is why that there's we we want connection with other things because actually at the end of the day, we know we know that we can't do it ourselves. Um, yeah, mm. so it's a, quite an, an interesting dynamic there. Okay, time for one more question. Eldon. Yeah, I'm just um, appreciating your you know, comments about eclectics and you know, Bavink's understanding of it. And I'm just trying to merge between, because um, you mentioned Bavink and Ventil at the same time. So on one hand, eclectics, you know, trying to engage and have points of contact with unbelievers. But with uh, Ventil's understanding of, let's say, the impossibility of the contrary, right? Yeah. Um, does that mean then that in our exposing of the other religions to be false, we actually want to know their worldview so as to prove that it's internally inconsistent? Is that part of what Bobby and Yeah, it is. But um, and again, and I, I me, think. Yeah, me, sorry, yeah, go, uh, sorry. So um, <laughs> is, is analyzing the other worldviews, other religions to show that they're internally incoherent, which is really what Van Til would say? Um, is that actually what Bavink is about in the exercise of elenctics? Yes, and again, I'll touch on this tomorrow. But it can't; ju it's not less than a, an intellectual. It's not. It's not less than an intellectual task, but it's more than that. It's got to be holistic. The great thing about the great thing about idolatry uh, is, that, so, is that. Sorry, can you cut that yeah. bit? Just dub that bit. Yeah. Is that it? Doesn't just the simple. It doesn't just appeal to the head. It, it, it employs all the faculties. It, so it's not just internal consistency theoretically. It's about what I believe and what I do in practice. It's the liturgies that, are, that I, I live out my life. It's, it's the emotions. And again, part of what I want to talk about tomorrow is how you take a covenantal apologetic like Mantil, like you take Bavink in a certain sense. And what does that mean for engaging um, all types of people who sometimes lead with emotion or will or imagination. So I, I'm, I'm very aware. And Bavink's interesting in introduction to, to the science of mission. He almost kind of, he almost kind of says, I don't believe in apologetics in a certain sense. He says you can't, as if reason is almost, there's a, there's a rationalistic thing that he's not really interested in. He's in about the heart commitment to idolatry. Now, as I said, that, that can't be less than inter intellectual because key verse in the Isaiah thing we'll do tomorrow. What's the what does Isaiah say when the when the person's making the idol and then taking the fuel and burn it, making his dinner with it? No one stops to think. It's not no one stops to do a different liturgy or whatever. It's there is a there's definitely a discernment thinking that we have to get people to stop and think. But that it's more of a kind of a heart thing than it is a an intellect. And I mean Bavink talks, I mean uh Rob you I mean that passage of, about Van Til, I mean, Van Til talks about the unmasking. I think in your thesis, that's, that, um, that phrase comes up a few times, doesn't it? About the, the need to unmask. Um, and that's a very important point of um, uh, what, what our task is. But I think we'll end on this. And it's a lovely point. And I picked it up as I was reading, Pavink. He really loves people. Yes. And, um, yeah. you know, you can win an argument, but do you win the person? Exactly. You know, and um, that's really what he's getting at. I wonder if that's why Schaefer, with his ministry at Labrie, was so good, because he would just sit and listen to people in front of the fireplace, just talk to them, get yeah. to know them. And if I'm hearing you right, what, what you're saying and Bavink's saying is you can look at a religion 
intellectually, conceptually, you can find out all the sort of basic tenets yeah. of that faith, yeah. but you'll very rarely find a consistent Hindu. Yeah. You're going to yeah. find a Hindu who has a has a bit of all of that yeah. and also have actually probably in, has a bit of humanism in him as one, well. One of the most quoted passages yeah. in Introduction to the Science of Missions is where Bavink says, there is no such thing as Islam. There is only every Muslim that I come into contact with. Mm. Now, of course, we have to do, you know, if we were going to, if now if we consistently did that, when I teach a class on worldview, I'd have to do six billion hours <laughs> of everyone who has a particular. So you, as human beings, and again, you know, going back to Adam classifying the animal, generalization is part of what it means to be human. But generalization where we caricature and stereotype, which is why social media is not good for doing these things, mm. to sit down and actually hear and listen to all the nuances. And of course, you can do, this goes back to your point, it has to go somewhere. There's no point in doing the most detailed ethnography of your area if it's not going to end up in, what does this mean evangelistically and apologetically? It's got to, the, the mouth has to close on something, but we need to do that that work. And that is about loving others as we do un doing unto others as we would have them do unto you in that sense. It's that sense of we just need to love people like that because we hate it when people misunderstand us. Mm. But we can, if we go too quickly, we do need to listen, but it has to go somewhere in that, um, you know, the uncovering and then the calling people to Christ. Dan, thank you very much for joining That's us great. on the afterword today. And uh, we've really enjoyed the conversation, very stimulating. And we're looking forward to your lecture tomorrow at the uh, Van Til conference. Great. So, Thanks thank for you. being here. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming. Oh, sorry, I have a presentation. So uh, one of the things we do at the press, Dan, uh, is that we like to present authors who've helped us publish some of the books. And so this is a oh, gift wow. to you from uh, Westminster Seminary Press. Thank so, you. Uh, Beautiful. We, ex we expect that to go above your desk. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's beautiful. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate that. Wonderful. Yeah. It's a nice cover. Right. Buy uh, the book. It's a lovely. It's a it's great, great cover. It's great, it's great, it's great. Yeah. Look at that. That is beautiful. Yeah.